And so I am really counting on that this morning. But I'm also counting on the Holy Spirit. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to join us. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Illumine in us the grace and truth of your holy word. This we pray in your name. Amen. One scripture lesson this morning, it comes from the book of Genesis, the 50th chapter, verses 15 through 21. This is the end of the story of Joseph. Hear now the word of the Lord. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good. In order to preserve a numerous people, As he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When Joseph was a kid, he had great dreams for his life. But all of those dreams appeared shattered when his older brothers got fed up with all of the favoritism that their father Jacob showed to him. You remember the coat of many colors. Even though Joseph was the 11th son, we are told that Jacob loved Joseph most of all. And Joseph would not let his brothers forget this fact. And so filled with resentment, Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave to a caravan heading toward Egypt. Now, sibling rivalry has always been common. But this was an unthinkable crime, even in ancient society. And so before long, Joseph found himself rotting away in a forgotten corner of an Egyptian prison. Thanks to his brothers, he had fallen about as far as anyone in this life can fall. This was certainly not his dream. But it was there, at this rock-bottom moment, that Joseph discovered the steadfast love of God and that it was sufficient for him. 
And that ended up making all of the difference in his life. I think that sooner or later we all find ourselves in this rock bottom place. Maybe not in an Egyptian prison. But maybe we were sent to the bottom by a parent who was too hurt to love us the way that we needed to be loved. Maybe we were put there by a friend who lied to us or betrayed us. Maybe the bottom came when someone that we loved moved out. Or when the employer that we trusted let us go just to save a little money. Maybe your bottom was called or caused by the bully who just refused to leave you alone. Maybe it came the day you learned that your child had been abusing substances or the day that you discovered that your spouse had been unfaithful. Maybe your bottom came when you or someone you loved was diagnosed with cancer or depression or dementia. Maybe your bottom came when an addiction took hold and would not let you go. At some point or another, we all find ourselves faced with circumstances that lead us to this rock-bottom place. And when this happens, we feel as if our life is over, that it's lost, don't we? We might as well be wasting away in that Egyptian jail. This is not what we dreamed. But if, like Joseph... If we lift up our eyes to find that the steadfast love of God is always with us, it changes everything. We don't just survive. We are transformed. We are a different person. We begin to take God more seriously and ourselves less seriously We begin to enjoy the gift of today, and we don't worry so much about tomorrow. Because after all, what is the worst that can happen? Are we going to fall back to the bottom? We have already been there, and we discover that it was there that God is faithful. We in the Calvinist tradition used to account for our brokenness by the doctrine of human depravity, which means that we are addicted to sin, is one way to put it. But we don't hear too much about that anymore. Now, most of us, most people don't blame their problems on being depraved, but more on being deprived. Somebody took something away from me. But until we discover, like Joseph, the sufficiency of the faithfulness of God, we will always live in that place of fear or resentment that we are being deprived. But when we have discovered that sufficiency, when we have claimed it as our own, then we are freed from these shackles. This is Joseph's story, and we are invited to see ourselves in it. Now, eventually, Joseph rose from the bottom, 
And he became the second most powerful man in Egypt. He married, he had kids, and he gave thanks day after day to his God who was faithful. His first son he named Manasseh, which means makes to forget. When that boy was born, Joseph said, God has made me forget all of my hardships of my father's house. And then he called his second son Ephraim, which means makes fruitful. When Ephraim was born, Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortune. And so on the surface, it appears that Joseph's sufferings and hurt were behind him now. He had chosen not to be a victim anymore. He had chosen to get over it and move on. But Joseph wasn't over it. Joseph was still enslaved to the bitterness and hurt that his brothers had caused him. Just because we recover in some sense from the adversity that others might cause us, it does not mean that we have recovered from the resentment and from the bitterness and from some of the pain because that requires forgiveness. And we will never be free until we get to that place. And forgiveness is only a gift that we receive to God and that we can claim for ourselves before we can offer it to others. When a famine developed back home in Israel, Jacob sent Joseph's brothers to Egypt to buy food. Oh, and it turns out that Joseph was the one in charge of the distribution aid. A lot of years had passed at this point since the brothers had sold young Joseph into slavery. Joseph was now a changed man. He had grown up. His brothers did not recognize him. But Joseph knew who they were the moment that he saw them. How many nights do you think he had seen their faces in his nightmares as he relived that awful day when they stripped him bare, threw him in a pit, and sold him to the slavers? Joseph knew these men all too well. And so at first, he kept his identity a secret, and he used his power to essentially toy with his brothers. He treats them as strangers, which is what we always do to those who have hurt us. He spoke to them harshly. He called them spies and threw them in jail. He sent them back home with money hidden in their sacks to make them look like thieves. He even went as far to hide a silver cup in the sack of the youngest brother. Then he sent soldiers to bring him back to Egypt, knowing that it would break the hearts of his brothers. These are not the actions of someone who has made peace with their past. These are the actions of a man who wants a little payback. But Joseph found no joy in it. No one ever does. Eventually, Joseph takes a long, hard look into his brother's eyes. And then he begins to weep. And that is the turning point. That is the pivotal moment in this story. Joseph wept so loudly that the whole household of Pharaoh 
heard him. I believe that that is the sound of forgiveness. It was the sound of Joseph finally letting go and finding his freedom from the hurt and from what had happened to him. So after the tearful reconciliation, Joseph's brothers bring their father Jacob to Egypt. And there they all lived until Jacob died. But apparently the brothers couldn't quite believe that they had been truly forgiven. Because as hard as it is to believe that we can forgive the hurts that others cause us, it is sometimes even harder to believe that we can be forgiven and accept that forgiveness. The brothers just assumed that Joseph didn't kill them out of deference to their father Jacob. And so after Jacob dies, they're terrified. They come back before Joseph and bow down to him, just as Joseph had once dreamed that they would do when he was a boy. But the brothers weren't bowing to worship Joseph. They were bowing in fear of his anger. This made Joseph weep again. But this time, his tears were tears of compassion. We forgive in stages. Forgiveness happens in stages. But we know that we have made it to the final stage when our tears of anger have turned into tears of compassion for those who have done us wrong. Lewis Smedes has written that you have fully forgiven when you no longer think of those who have wronged you as those who hurt you but you begin to think of them as those who need you. They do not need you to take care of them or to fix them or to solve their problems. That's not what they need. What they need is for you to free them. And of course, that is asking a lot. That is hard. How do we get to this place of moving from angry revenge to a willingness to grant freedom? It's significant that Joseph first has to convince his brothers that he is free, that he has let it go, before he can convince them that he has freed them. Only a free, forgiven person can free and liberate another. At this moment, Joseph says two very important things to his brothers. The first was to ask his brothers, Am I in the place of God? There is so much freedom waiting for any who discover that they do not have to be the judge. That that is the place of God. We have a judge. So do those who hurt us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we have to make room for the wrath of God. Judgment is a business reserved to sacred and divine activity. It is hard enough to live in this world that is racked by injustice. But it is impossible to live in this world with any peace if we assume the role of judging everyone who hurts us, who does us wrong. Because after a while, our heart will be so filled with rage and resentment that there is no room left for love or hope or joy. 
This is why Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek. He doesn't say this as a way of saying we are to let the abuser off the hook. He says this because he meant to let us off the hook of being the angry judge. Jesus' words are meant to free us. The second thing that Joseph says is even more profound, I think. He says, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. This is the great mystery of God's unfolding drama in our lives. As a result of this evil act, Joseph was sent to Egypt as a slave. But as a result of being in Egypt, he rose to his position in Pharaoh's government. And a result, as a result of the power that he acquired in this position, he could save his family. He could save the Hebrew people as he distributed relief aid for their famine. Joseph was in the right place at the right time, but it was the evil of his brothers that brought him there. The Apostle Paul says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What amazing good news it is that God can redeem any evil done with God's good intentions and God's good purposes. But still at this point in the story, I find myself asking, why does God use evil to get us to the right place? Maybe it was necessary for Joseph to be in a powerful position to keep the Hebrews from starving. But weren't there easier ways to get him there? Did he really have to go through slavery and jail and torture along the way? I think my theological question behind this is, why do good people have to be pushed around and sent to the bottom in order to get to the right place? But I think a deeper reading of Joseph's story reveals that this is just another one of my bad questions, or at least it is the wrong question. It certainly is not the question that God is asking God is much more interested in who we are, in the ways that we live out our faithfulness, than where we get to in our lives. The good intention of God is not just to get us to a certain place, but to mold us into a people who live by his steadfast love and faithfulness, no matter where we find ourselves. And until our hearts begin to overflow with gratitude for that faithfulness, for that steadfast love, we will never be free to stop judging or resenting. We will never be free to laugh again or to love unreservedly. And so wherever it is that we find this freedom, this trust in the faithfulness of God, This is the right place to be, even if it's in the rock-bottom places. God does not cause our hurt. God does not orchestrate our pain. There is enough evil in the world caused 
by humans to account for most of that. And the rest can be accounted for the hurt that we cause ourselves. But the miracle, the amazing good news, is that God is willing to get down in the midst of it so that we may find his enduring love, his steadfast grace, a deep sufficiency in his power, a love that will not let us go. Thanks be to God.